Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7? As most of you already know, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And when we got to chapter 5, we really slowed it down, as you can tell. Because chapters 5, 6, and 7 constitute a section in Matthew's Gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus Christ has been giving his disciples principles for kingdom living. And very important, as he has been working his way through here, as we have pointed out many times before, uh, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been contrasting true righteousness with the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, using them as an example of how not to be, what not to do, while he then holds up God's standard as the right way to live and to act and to approach God, and so on. And as we work our way through the entire sermon, we came to verses 13 and 14 last time, where the Lord Jesus Christ brings this sermon to its evangelistic climax and conclusion by making application. He comes to this point, and he demands now from his audience a response. Every good preacher, at one point after they lay out the truth, is going to press the audience to make a decision now. Now that you've heard the truth is the idea, what are you going to do about it? The Lord Jesus Christ does that right here. As we said last time, the Sermon on the Mount is not to be applauded, it's to be applied. It's not to be admired, it's to be acted upon. This is a call to action in verses 13 and 14. You see, nobody knew more than the Lord Jesus Christ how important salvation was. He said, for this purpose I have come into the world to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus knew that this was the most important decision a person would ever be confronted with, ever have to make, because the decision to accept Christ as Lord and Savior has eternal consequences attached to it. What you do with Jesus Christ is going to affect and determine where you spend eternity. And verses 13 to 27 as we said last week, form kind of a long postscript as Jesus gives the invitation and then gives some warnings, okay? But in these verses, Jesus Christ is presenting the gospel in the simplest terms possible. Look at how he lays out the choices. The Lord speaks here of two gates, one great, the other small. Two ways, one broad, the other narrow. Two destinations. One is life, the other is destruction. Two crowds, the few and the many. And then he continues right on. He talks about two kinds of trees, one good and the other corrupt. Two kinds of fruit, one good and the other bad. Two kinds of builders, one wise, the other foolish. Two kinds of foundations, one rock, the other sand. And two kinds of houses, one that stands and the other that falls. You can see how Jesus Christ is clearly laying out a choice. In a sense, he's kind of brought us to the crossroads of life and now leaves it up to each person to decide for him or herself which way you're going to go. And there are only two choices, folks. There is God's way or there is the world's way. As we said last week, God's way is a narrow gate. The best translation would be that of a turnstile. If you've ever gone through a turnstile, you realize you can't go with a crowd, okay? A crowd cannot get through a turnstile 
together. You have to go one by one. You can't get into heaven as part of a group. You can't get there because you were born into a certain denomination or by virtue of the fact that I'm an American. So there's a special place in heaven for all of us, right? You can't get there because you're part of a group. The Jews thought because they were descendants of Abraham, all Jews were automatically saved. They thought they got to heaven by being a part of a group. Jesus is saying you don't get there as a group. You have to come individually of your own free will. And then only after you've counted the cost, repented, and have become poor in spirit, which is exactly what Jesus began this sermon with in chapter 5, verse 3, when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, which means destitute of self-effort. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and the Greek is, theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means destitute of self-effort. You don't work your way up into heaven. It's a gift that God gives to you. And if you receive it, Jesus comes to get you. It's not taking your good works and building this stairway to heaven. It's that when you receive Christ, at one point, He comes and gets His church. It takes us to be with Him. So all the hard work in the world. And that's what religion is, guys. And that's why we say, you know, there's only two ways. One is the narrow way of God's grace through Christ. The other is man's efforts. Man's religion. Man doing this or that or keeping this ritual, a ceremony or sacrifice as a basis for getting into heaven. There's a lot of people that travel that road. There's a lot of folks that are going down that way and they think that they're going toward God in heaven. But you see, only the narrow gate leads to eternal life. And Jesus Christ is the narrow gate. He is the narrow way. The only way into heaven. Remember we talked about this last week? Jesus said in John 10 verse 9, He said, I am the door. The better translation would be gate. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He goes on to say, anyone else who tries or anyone who tries to enter into heaven any other way, the same as a thief and robber. Thief and robbers don't get into heaven. They're excluded from heaven. Only those who have come the right way can be saved. Jesus is the gate, but he's also the way, isn't he? He talked about the narrow gate and the narrow way or the difficult road. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So he is both the gate and he is the way. And we don't get to heaven or God any other way except through him. Now, here's the thing. God wants us all to get saved. Yeah, one at a time. Okay. But he wants us all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? And right here, in verses 13 and 14, he is inviting people to be saved. Why? Because he's a God of love and a God of compassion. But make no mistake about this. Just because God is a God of compassion and wants to see all people saved doesn't mean his compassion doesn't have some teeth. What do I mean? Well, God is all love, but God is not only love. God possesses all the love there is to have. God is love. The theologians call this the omnibenevolence of God. He is all love, but he is not only love. He is also a God of righteousness and justice and holiness. He loves sinners, but he has to punish sin. And that's why he sent his son. That's why we love John 3.16 so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus Christ became our substitute. God laid upon him the iniquities of us all. 
All we like sheep had gone astray, the Bible says. We had everyone turned to us own way. But God laid on Jesus Christ all of our sins and he punished Christ in our place that we might have entrance into heaven through what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. Look, Jesus Christ wants to be your loving Savior. That's why he came to die. But if you refuse him, if you reject him as your Savior, someday he will become to you your righteous judge. And folks, what Jesus becomes to you then will depend on what road you take now. Let's read verses 13 and 14 again. Where Jesus said, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult. And listen, only a few ever find it. Why? Why, why do only a few ever find the true way to God? Well, it's not because God is hiding it. It's because they just don't want to look for it. You know, if you are given a choice of coming to God in a very tolerant religious system, where you can pretty much live the way you want, do whatever you want, and still get to heaven, who's going to reject that way to live a life of denial and sacrifice and persecution following Jesus, right? The reason only a few find it is not because it's not available to all people. Or God has hidden the narrow way. It's just that we're living at a time when people want to do whatever seems right in their own eyes and yet they still want to have God. And so naturally, they're going to choose for themselves some kind of religious system that allows them to have both. Where they can still be in control of their lives and live with the way they want. And all the while they'll have God go to church and feel very good about themselves and their relationship with God. But Jesus has brought us to the crossroads. To, to the right is the narrow way, and to the left then is the broad way. Both, listen, are marked this way to God in heaven. And yet only one is true, the other is a lie. Only one leads to heaven, the other to hell. And what really makes the choice difficult is that standing in front of these two gates are false prophets, doing everything in their power to direct people through the wrong gate and down the wrong way. They are standing there blocking the entrance to the narrow gate and waving people on like spiritual traffic cops down the broad way that leads to destruction. And Jesus knew this only too well. And that's why after he admonishes people to enter through the narrow gate, he quickly adds a warning. And that's where we pick it up this morning in verses 15 to 20, where Jesus said, and remember now, with all that as background, now this makes more sense, right? Some people think we've shifted into a new subject. We haven't shifted into a new subject. Jesus Christ is warning. He's just admonished people, enter heaven by the only way you can get there, the narrow gate. But be careful. Because Satan has got his false prophets who are going to try to mislead you down the wrong way. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree, healthy tree is the idea, bears good and healthy fruit. But a bad tree, a diseased tree, bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. I just think it's tragic how many false prophets have such successful ministries. I mean, just watch a little Christian TV and you will see the stadiums packed to hear false prophets preach. They have very successful ministries. We can see that from verse 22. And the number of people they mislead into hell. In verse 22, Jesus starts off with the word many. Remember that. Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. In fact, the many in verse 22 is the same many in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. The Lord is saying, as you seek to enter the narrow gate, or in other words, as you seek to find God in heaven, beware of those who would try to mislead you. Now, verses 15 to 27 are built around two extremely important warnings, okay? First of all, beware of false prophets, verses 15 to 20. And then beware of false professions, verses 21 to 27. And by false professions, I mean false professions of faith, okay? Don't kid yourself into thinking you're saved just because you said a prayer, walked an aisle, filled out a card at a crusade sometime. There's got to be something else going on. Many people are, have made false professions and they have deceived themselves into thinking they are right with God and on their way to heaven when Jesus is trying to say to them, look, you better examine yourself. So a lot of people are going to say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, these are not atheists or agnostics. The fact that they repeat Lord twice indicates that's emphatic. They're shocked. Why? Because they're churchgoers. And they've been involved in ministry. And they even claim to have prophesied and cast out demons in Jesus' name. Yet they're not going to be going to heaven. Alright, he starts off verse 15 as he is warning us about false prophets. He begins 15 with the word beware. The Greek word translated beware means to pay attention to, to keep on the lookout for, to be alert for, to be on one's guard against. It also had a nautical application, by the way. And it was a term that was used to, to uh, instruct sailors to be careful not to drift off course. And Jesus doesn't leave us guessing what this warning is attached to. He comes right out and tells us, Beware of false prophets. You know, folks, false prophets are nothing new or unique to the church age. They have been around since the beginning. No sooner did God proclaim his truth and began to speak through his prophets, Satan raised up false prophets who began to speak lies in God's name, usually for their own selfish gain. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, he said, 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, but there were also false prophets in Israel in the Old Testament period, just as there will be false teachers among you, among God's people in the New Testament period. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bought them. In this way they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. 
Many, there's that many again, many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth, that would be the narrow way, right? Will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be delayed. So, false prophets have been around from the beginning. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, much of the ministries of true prophets of God, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, much of their ministries were taken up with confronting, correcting, and rebuking false prophets who were like a cancer in the land of Israel. To Jeremiah, God said in chapter 14, verse 14, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Of course, let's be honest. There would be no false prophets if there weren't a market for their lies. All right? I mean... In Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 to 11, God said, These people, speaking of Israel in general now, the people that were flocking to these characters who were false prophets, these people, my people, are stubborn rebels who refuse to pay attention to the Lord's instructions. They tell seers, stop seeing visions. They tell the prophets, the true prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. Forget all this gloom. Listen to this one. Get off your narrow path. Isn't that interesting? That's what false prophets do. False prophets are always trying to get you off the narrow path. They want to pervert the ways of the Lord. They want to make what is straight crooked. What takes you to God, they want to get you off into the broad road where you think you're on your way to God, but in reality you are on your way to hell. Get off the narrow path. Stop telling us about your Holy One of Israel. Wow. How about Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31? God said, A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land of Israel. The prophets give false prophecies and the priests rule with an iron hand. Worse yet, my people like it that way. But listen, what will they do when the end comes? See, God had raised up Jeremiah to call the nation to repentance before the judgment of God fell. The judgment of God was very near at this point. And God said to Jeremiah, you tell these people that they only have a short time left to repent before my judgment falls. So Jeremiah, a faithful prophet, began to preach. And he preached faithfully. It's time to repent. It's time to turn from your sins, your idolatry, and come back to the Lord. He's merciful. He'll forgive you. You know what the false prophets were doing? Oh, listen to Jeremiah. He's too negative. I mean, our ministries are built on what's positive, you know? We only say positive things, right? Look, God loves you. He would never judge his own people. What? Who is this guy telling you God would judge his own people? God loves you. In fact, he's got nothing but blessings, prosperity, and sunshine days on the head. It's going to be a great, you know? So just keep believing. Keep making those positive confessions. Don't listen to a negative guy like Jeremiah. You know what God said? He said, you know what? My spirit has been trying to cut people's hearts to bring conviction, but you false prophets, you're putting a band-aid on a mortal wound by telling the people peace 
peace. When there is no peace, you know, you listen to that. People like to hear that kind of stuff. But what happens when the judgment comes? Where are all the prosperity preachers when the judgment comes? I mean, it's a sad thing. People are buying into these teachings and they're totally unprepared for what's coming. Paul the Apostle predicted that this attitude of just wanting your ears tickled, wanting to hear what you want to hear, not really wanting to hear what God has said, was not something that would be limited to the Old Testament period, but would carry into the church age and become more and more prevalent the closer we got to the Lord's return. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy, who was a young pastor. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. He said, For the time is coming. The time is coming in the church, is what he is saying. When people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching from God's Word. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. And they will reject the truth of God and chase after myths. And again, to quote Jeremiah 5.31, And my people seem to love it so. But what are they going to do when the end comes? I don't know if judgment is coming upon America soon. I I can't believe, as Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. So I don't know uh, how close the judgment of God is. I know one thing. God's people better wake up. Many are asleep in the light. You know, God said, look, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear their prayers from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. But you got to know you're sick, right? Jesus said, look, I haven't come to the healthy. I've come to the sick. You Pharisees, you're sick. You just think you're healthy. The sinners, the tax collectors, the harlots, they know they're sick. They know they need me. I'm not going to hang out with you guys all the time. You think you're already all right with God. So a lot of people in America have no sense of conviction for the way they're living. And I'll tell you what, if hard times come and God begins to judge America, what are all the prosperity teachers going to be teaching then? If we go through a a, a meltdown financially, what, what in the world would they say? I mean, those people that have bought into that teaching are completely unprepared for what's coming. In fact, when you listen to lies long enough, you begin to think in terms of lies. You begin to, your mind begins to transition from truth into lies, and now suddenly lies become truth, and truth becomes lies. And this is exactly what is going to happen when the Antichrist shows up. As Jesus said, uh, right before his return, he said in Matthew 24, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. There's that many again. Why is that? Because people have been conditioned. They have embraced lies for so long from people who claim to represent God. They have been conditioned to accept the ultimate lie in the person of the Antichrist. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you beforehand. The truth is the only thing that can save us from lies. But the Bible warns us, guys, over and over to beware of false prophets. Paul warned, they speak doctrines of demons. Peter warned, they bring damning heresies. 
John warned, you better test with Scripture the Spirit that is speaking through that pastor, preacher, or teacher to make sure that they are speaking on God's behalf because many false prophets, John said, have gone out into the world. And also we read in our text this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself warned us to beware of false prophets. Now the question is, what is a false prophet? Well, let's answer that by first defining what a true prophet is. A true prophet was somebody who was appointed by God to speak on his behalf. He was the voice of God on the earth. Now, there's an interesting example of this in a little different context. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Exodus chapter 4 and then Exodus 7. But here's the background. God appears to Moses and says to him, Look, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses said, Well, who am I, Lord? To go to Pharaoh and tell him, let your people go. You know I don't speak very well. I stutter, Lord. You can't stutter when you go to a guy like Pharaoh. God says, don't worry about it. I'll be with you. I'll be with your mouth. Oh, Lord, I can't do it. Send somebody else. It says, but the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. In other words, he'll be your prophet. You give him the words I've given you. Speak to him. Let him speak to the people in Pharaoh if you're afraid of how you talk. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet, your spokesman. So look, if a genuine prophet speaks on behalf of God, giving people God's truth, a false prophet will be someone who obviously does not speak God's truth, but instead speaks lies while oftentimes claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. Again, I'll let you read Jeremiah 23 this week. Very powerful chapter on this subject. Let me just read you verses 25 to 32, though, where God is speaking again. He said... I have heard these prophets say, listen to the dream I had from God last night. You can't turn on the TV. Christian television not seeing some character talking about his visions and dreams and God told me this and God told me that. And God says, listen to these prophets who say, listen uh, to the dream I had from God last night. And then they proceed to tell lies in my name. How long will this go on? If they are prophets, they are prophets of deceit, inventing everything they say. By telling these false dreams, they are trying to get my people to forget me, just as their ancestors did by worshiping the idols of Baal. Let these false prophets tell their dreams, but let my true messengers faithfully proclaim my every word. There is a difference between the straw and the grain, right? Does not my word burn like a fire, says the Lord? Is it not like a mighty hammer that smashes a rock to pieces? Look, God says, my word has power. My word doesn't just placate. It penetrates down to the heart, cutting a person's heart with conviction. Folks, only God's word can reach into the heart and take a cold heart and set it on fire and take a hard heart and break it into pieces and bring repentance. You can't do that with the words of man, the philosophies of man, or anything that has to do with man. Only God's Spirit can do that, working through the power of God's Word. Therefore, says the Lord, I am against these prophets who steal messages from each other and proclaim they are from me. 
I am against these smooth-tongued prophets who say, this prophecy is from the Lord. I am against these false prophets. Their imaginary dreams are flagrant lies that lead my people into sin. I did not send them or appoint them, and they have no message at all for my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, you think that God's people would have gotten the message and we wouldn't see this kind of thing in the New Testament. Unfortunately, people haven't changed. There will always be a market for false prophets. And when I say false prophets, I mean anybody who claims to speak for God, whether they be a preacher, a teacher, an evangelist, or whatever it might be, there will always be a market for false prophets as long as there will be people who want to have their ears tickled and hear what they want to hear. I mean, people who really don't want to hear the truth of God, but instead want to hear how God wants them to be rich and successful and loaded down with all kinds of material things. Or maybe it's just that they want to hear a very positive, soothing message that makes them feel good about the way they're living, even if they're living in sin. In other words, they want to be made to feel good and not challenged to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow in Jesus' footsteps. That's not a popular message today, is it? See, the Broadway is so much nicer. And in fact, because it's so prosperous, the venues that preach the false messages are very nice, aren't they? I'm amazed at the wealth of some of the churches and ministries of some of these false prophets. And people think, they're deceived into thinking bigger is better. The bigger the church or the bigger the ministry, the more God must be moving. Forgetting that Jesus said in the last days, deception would be rampant and truth would be scarce. And that the church of Laodicea would be large and prosperous where Jesus was on the outside knocking to get in, whereas the church of Philadelphia would be small. And yet, as Jesus said to them in Revelation 3, he said, you know, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's a successful church in the eyes of God. It's not how big a church is, how many people are stuffed into that building. It's the heart. Are they walking in the truth of God's word and are they not denying Jesus' name? That's the, the, the criteria by which Jesus judges whether a church is a good church or not. I just had lunch with a Calvary pastor last week. And for a while, God opened the door for him to pastor a... Uh, 175-year-old congregational church in Aurora. I think some of the original members were still at the church. I mean, I tell you, they were, these folks were really locked into their little deal. So here comes this Calvary guy, and he said, look, are you sure you want me? Here's some of my tapes. I mean, you know, before you hire me, you better see what I'm teaching, right? And they listened, I guess, and said, yeah, we want you. She comes in, starts preaching the cross, starts preaching the Bible verse by verse. One of the members used to pastor that church years ago and came to him, actually said this to him, you know what, man, you've got to get past the cross. We need to hear you teach on, on how we are to handle our finances, raise our children, do this. All ultra-pragmatic topics that really didn't deal with the cross, with, with the dying to self, with repentance and true salvation. I'd like to tell you that that was an anomaly. It's becoming the norm in this country. People don't want to hear about the cross. They certainly don't want to hear about denying yourself. All right. We've looked at who the false prophets are, what makes a false prophet. How about how will false prophets come? Well, Jesus said in verse 15, they will come in sheep's clothing, right? False prophets are dangerous because of their doctrine. 
and they are able to deceive because of their disguise. They come dressed in sheep's clothing. Now, as a kid, I remember watching the cartoons, you know, and you have a cartoon, I don't know, Bugs Bunny or Elmer Fudd or something like that. I don't know what it was, but, you know, you see the little flock of sheep and the wolf had laid a sheepskin over his, you know, and you see the sheep's head on top of his head, you know, and he's sneaking and nobody knows it's the wolf, right? Because he completely blends in. And a lot of people think that's what Jesus is talking about here. You're going to have people who are really deceivers, going to come into the congregation, act like one of the true sheep, you know, and then do their dirty work, sow the false doctrine, and so on and so forth, and sow discord. Well, I think that that is part of what Jesus meant. But I don't think that's the ultimate thing he was talking about. Look, guess what? Back in those days, one of the perks of being a shepherd was that you could take all the wool you needed to make for yourself all the clothes you wanted. A person that came, and since a lot of these folks were shepherds or understood shepherding that Jesus was talking to, when Jesus said, beware of someone who comes to you in sheep's clothing, they would have thought immediately, that's a shepherd. Because a shepherd lives in sheep's clothing. And folks, while it's dangerous that we have somebody from the outside come in and act like one of the sheep to do damage among the sheep devoured with false doctrine, People in the church is a lot more dangerous and destructive when a man behind the pulpit is a false prophet. Because now he can affect the entire congregation, right? I think that's exactly the warning that Jesus was giving us here when he said, who will come where? To you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I think he's talking about beware of leaders who come into your churches acting like sheep, or looking like sheep, I should say, but acting like ravenous wolves listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 he said these people are false apostles because there were false apostles running around in Paul's day and false pastors just like today these, are, these people are false apostles they are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ but I'm not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness in the end they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve God is not mocked whatever a person sows that he or she will reap and I know at this point many would say well wait a minute do you mean to tell me that God allows men who are influenced by Satan to become pastors in Christian churches? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's absolutely what I'm saying. You say, well, but why would God allow these deceivers to infiltrate his church? (laughs) It's not God's fault that these false prophets and shepherds get into churches. He has given us his word to protect us from lies and he has told us to be on guard. The problem is that God's people open the doors of their churches to these deceivers of their own accord. Of their own accord. And I will have you turn to 2 Timothy 4. Again, we read part of this. Paul talks about this very reason why churches open the doors, the doors of their church. We're blaming God. Well, Lord, why would you allow these deceivers to come into your church? Why would I allow? Why do you allow? I've given you my word to tell you what's the truth. And I've told you to be on guard because they're coming. Now, if you reject the truth because you want your ears tickled, well, you can open your doors then to deceivers. Is that my fault? Or is it your fault? But Paul said, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, he said, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, 
who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Timothy, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching from God's word, of course. For a time will, is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Look at Satan can't deceive a church that teaches sound doctrine. Jesus said in John 8, He said, If you abide or continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from lies. Free from error is the idea. Paul picked up on that in 1 Timothy 4 once again. He said, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Timothy, you'll save yourself and your followers or your congregation from heresy, from false doctrine. Look, it's only when a church refuses to hear sound doctrine, but instead wants its ears tickled with feel-good messages, that they will then look to men who they think are men of God. But another pastor told me when he interviewed to pastor at a particular church and they found out he uh, taught verse by verse the whole counsel of God they said you know we really don't like doctrine here I mean we you know we don't want all that doctrine you know we want you know people to come and well, keep it positive and doctrine divides and experiences we want powerful experiences with God well those kind of people, those kind of churches are going to hire for themselves the kind of guys that will preach or the kind of gals that will preach that kind of message. And whereas they may think that this person is a man or a woman of God in reality, they're probably going to be a ravenous wolf who really don't care about the sheep. One of the characteristics of false teachers and false evangelists and prophets is they are always looking to fleece God's flock, never really feed and take care of God's flock. Turn to Ezekiel 34 as we bring this to a close. This is quite a chapter for pastors, okay, to read and meditate on. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1, where God is indicting these false shepherds, these false leaders, what they were of his people. It says, Then this message came to me from the Lord, Son of Man. That was a title that God called Ezekiel by. Son of Man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. When he says shepherds, he's talking about the leaders of Israel, not just the political leaders, but of course the spiritual leaders. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You have not taken care of the weak, you have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. A false shepherd is always in it for the bucks. They're not wanting to feed the sheep. They're wanting to fleece the sheep. And I can't tell you how God's people seem to love it so. The bigger the crook is, the bigger his ministry seems to be. And it seems so obvious he's nothing but a money grubber, somebody who's just 
you know, using Jesus to line his pockets, as Peter said, they're going to make merchandise out of you, these false shepherds and teachers and so on. You look at the guy and he's obviously a crook. He's so phony. It's like, can't you see this? And yet people love it. They can't send in enough money to this guy. And he's talking about, you know, people on fixed incomes sending their last $10 to Jesus because that's a seed faith donation. If you plant your seed faith donation, he's going to multiply it 100 times back. And so they're telling little widows on, on Social Security, send in your last 10 bucks. This guy's driving the best cars, living in the, the, the fanciest houses, stays at five-star hotels when he's in town doing his crusades, quote-unquote. I'll tell you what, I would not want to be in that man's shoes in the Day of Judgment at all. God says his true shepherds don't fleece the flock. They care for the sheep. They love the sheep. They lay down their lives for the sheep. Jesus said, a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this section in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 15, he said, and I quote, Do we have false prophets today? Do we have wolves in sheep's clothing today? We certainly do. Moreover, we do not only have them in the pews and in the pulpits, we have them in the denominational structures, in the seminaries, and in the church-related colleges. I find it amusing in the light of our text that today we call an academic degree or diploma a sheepskin. For some professors and ministers clearly cover their intentions with the sheepskins of higher learning while using their knowledge of the Bible and church history to damage the faith of those who listen to them. We are to be warned against such leaders, end quote. Which is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to do. Of course, he wasn't the only one. I also think of Paul the Apostle's admonition to the Ephesian elders. And we'll end with this. Turn to Acts chapter 20. You can read verses 28 to 31. I'll read you those verses out of the New Living Translation. Now, Paul is talking to a group of elders, pastors from Ephesus, where he spent three years longer than any place he ministered. This is his farewell address to these guys. He's not going to see them anymore. He knows that. He wants to give them some parting words of admonition and uh, urgency. He said in verse 28, So guard yourselves. You guys you know, understand, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. The devil's gunning for you leaders. Guard yourselves. Make sure your walk with God is solid. Practice what you preach. You can't give what you don't have. If you're not drawing from the living water of Christ every day by staying in fellowship with Him, how can you give a thirsty world around you any living water? So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, His church, which He purchased with His own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears I shed for you. Paul was a true shepherd. He was passing along to a group of shepherds, look, the wolves are out there. They're coming. Okay? In fact, we've already mentioned how that Jesus said they were coming. Peter said they were coming. 
Paul said they were coming. Jude said they're here. They crept in unnoticed, which blows my mind. How in the world could these guys creep in unnoticed when everybody, including the Lord himself, was warning us they were coming? Because churches have opened their doors willingly. They have not been taught the word of God and therefore they have no discernment to know good from evil. And we're living in the last days. Deception is rampant. But Paul was a true shepherd. He said, look, part of the responsibility of being a good shepherd is not only to lead and feed the flock of God, it's to watch and warn. To watch and warn. Because I'll tell you the truth, these false teachers, it's not just your money they're after. They're after your soul. Because they work for Satan. Whether they realize it or not. And you know what? Paul was not afraid to name names if he needed to. You know, there have been times in the course of our study on this subject, we have named names. I mean, you know what? Are false prophets around today? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's amazing to me, the more bizarre they are, the bigger their ministries. And so when we have it on occasion mentioned names from the pulpit, some Christians get very offended. You shouldn't do that. You should never name names. Well, Paul named names. About five, six, seven times he named guys by name who were false teachers and so on. I mean, why are we protecting the wolves and not protecting God's people? If wolves have come in among God's people and are spouting off false doctrine, what are we doing protecting them? We're worried about their feelings. I could care less about the wolf. I'm worried about the poor lamb he's got in his mouth. That's what I want to rescue. And Jesus Christ wants to teach us to be discerning. And so we will continue on this very uplifting subject next week. (laughs) And I know you will scurry back because it's been so encouraging to you. Hey, look, sometimes we just need to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, I mean, we're living in a fallen world. It's getting darker by the hour, folks. We need to be lights, which means we've got to know the truth. May God give us the grace to know the truth and to speak it to the people of this world. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. And if we walk in your word, we'll walk in light and never stumble in darkness. And Lord, we are living in the last days, days of great deception and darkness, Lord, where even your church has succumbed to the apostasy in many regards. Father, it's becoming harder and harder to find Christians who have not been taken captive by some false teaching and imprisoned by the devil, Lord, and taken out of the race. And Lord, we want to be a faithful church and give us grace to walk in your truth, to be discerning, Lord. Give us discernment to know what is true because it's of you and what is not true. We want to walk the narrow path. It's not easy. It's getting harder. The world has declared war and now we have churches and Christians so-called who have declared war on us who want to stand up for the truth and call the false shepherds out by name. Give us grace, Lord, that we might be faithful to the end, that you might give to us a crown of life. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.